Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Hold on to your butts. Now, what shall we talk about? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to the Duel of the Greats podcast, episode eight. It is on the run week, folks, and we're on the run to start this episode. I should call it the new and improved Duel of the Greats podcast. Um, <laughs> so just just before we get started, even, we'll throw it out there. So we've heard from 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 a couple of, of you very dedicated fans out there that um, we have some... The, 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 the best parts of the show are when we are directly comparing and contrasting the two films against each other. So that's what the people want, the people that we've heard from anyway. Um, and you know what? That's what we're going to give you. So we're shaking up the format a little bit this week. And we're, uh, what we've decided to do is, you know, if, if you've listened to the past seven weeks, we will introduce the movies and we'll give some background and then we'll talk about each movie individually. And then at the end, we give our, our summation of whether you know, we liked which, which one movie or the other better. Um, so now what we've decided to do is we've decided to actually break the, the show up into different categories within each episode. And then we'll compare the movies directly to each other from within each category. So it's more of a categorical approach to the comparison as opposed to talking about the movies individually and then comparing them. Um, so we're we're still gonna have some fun facts from our local historian Steve here, but it's uh the um the the professor himself will, will introduce our our uh, that's Nate Carter by the way is the professor, um, but we'll uh he's gonna introduce the the categories uh for the shows. But this this week, as I said, it's on the run week. We have Steven Spielberg's The Sugarland Express versus Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise, and um. Steve, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Give us, uh, give us some, some interesting things that we may not know about these movies here. All right. All right. Um, the, the masses have spoken, so we're going to give you all the, the bread and circuses that you require. Uh, you didn't want any, any high, highfalutin talk about themes and things like that. I mean, I guess we're still going to talk about themes, but you want blood, you want mano a mano and okay. I may be overselling it. We're not going to get that bad, but, um, instead of boring you to death with a whole bunch of history, which I love because I'm a historian, but um, I'm going to give you just a few little kind of fun things that I, I thought when researching these movies, um, as Jeff said, our first movie is the Sugarland Express, which is arguably Steven Spielberg's first movie. We did duel as his first movie, which was his first feature length, but this is his first feature length motion picture that was released in theaters and not on TV. Um <clears throat> And in a lot of ways, this was his real his first true movie making experience um, with a big crew and uh, everything that that entails. So um, that's uh, that's kind of where he's coming from with that. It's um, nineteen seventy four. Sorry, is when it was released. Um, it's going up against Thelma and Louise, which 
uh, probably most people have heard of Ridley Scott's 1991 crime drama. Um, obviously not his first movie. He'd been doing quite a bit uh, up to that point. But Sugarland Express, going back to it, I got three facts for you. One, on the first, one of the first days of shooting, Robert Zanuck, 21st, excuse me, 20th Century Fox president, son of famous Daryl Zanuck, said of this youngster, Steven Spielberg, he said he didn't think anyone knew the mechanics of movie making as well as he did. I'm talking about Steven Spielberg. This is, remember, essentially his first movie. And he basically blew the socks off of everybody that saw him when he was there in terms of just controlling the set and working with everyone, getting people in the right places. Um, so that just shows you the level of command that he had, even at this young, young age. Um, it's really quite astounding. I guess it shows kind of his background, uh, how much he had been immersed in uh, movie making and all that. Uh, he just soaks things up like a sponge. Uh, two. Uh, so the Sugarland Express, if you haven't seen it, again, why are you listening to this? But uh, if you if you still want to stick with us, it essentially is about a, uh, a husband and wife that take a, a cop hostage and uh, drive across Texas. They're trying to get their baby back, and they're, they're going to get the baby. And it was taken away by CPS, basically, Child Protective Services. Anyway, in the movie, Goldie Hawn, the mother, uh, is kind of the prime mover and shaker. She gets this whole... Thing started gets the ball uh, rolling, so to speak. In real life, this is based on a true story. In real life, it was the father that kind of um, took the uh, took the reins. I'm using a lot of cliches, but the father is the one that started started the chase uh, and got kind of dragged the wife along with him. His name was Bobby Dent, and he was um, spoilers. I don't know if Jeff did you get the spoiler at the beginning. I don't remember, but spoiler warning again. If you're here and you haven't watched it, just go watch it. But um. He dies. The dad dies. Bobby Dent gunned down. The uh, this is the fun fact for you. The name of the sheriff who killed him, E. T. Elliot. Which, if you're a Steven Spielberg fan, I would assume you are. Uh, those should ring a bell. Uh, you know, Elliot is the main character in E. T. In case you didn't put that together. Um, and this was where Spielberg actually got the inspiration for the name. Um. It's funny the things that stick in people's head. He he must have just read that when he was when he was first researching this, and he just was like, I gotta use that somewhere else. Anyway, um, another fun fact, at least I think so. They really really experimented with different ways to shoot these um, these shots, and one of the things he came up with was the cop car that they're in for much of the movie. They took the wheels off. It's a real car. They took the wheels off of it, mounted it on a trailer, and dragged it along behind another car but they put rails on either side of the car so that they could move the camera back and forth on a dolly on the trailer while the car is moving. I thought that was really, really cool. I don't know if that's, maybe that's very common. I don't know. Nate, the professor might have to weigh in on that. Nate, is that something that you've ever heard of? Uh, it, it seems like a really, really more on technique. like current productions. I think it was kind of a novelty at the time. I think it was sort of yeah. a newer thing at the time. They did a lot of stuff. Uh, which we'll get into about how they sort of shot in and around the car and had and directed actors in the car in Sugarland Express. But yeah, it's, more it's on that in, yeah, more on that in a moment. To be continued. I guess it was also the first time they used the Panaflex, which is I guess a really famous camera because it was so light and was able to do a lot of things that other cameras couldn't. But anyway, they the Panavision company picked this movie to be kind of their test case for this this famous camera that is like revolutionized. Uh, filmmaking. I don't know. I'm talking out of my ass. Nate can tell you a lot more about it. Anyway, 
Uh, the movie, it only wound up with a $7.5 million box office. So, you know, a real barn burner. People were rushing to the theaters to see this thing. Um, it was it was a critical and um, commercial disappointment. But it has kind of lingered as um, an interesting touchstone in Steven's, uh, Steven Spielberg's catalog um, in some ways. You know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that later. It only won one award, Best Screenplay at 1974 Cannes Film Festival. So there you go. All right. Um, hopefully you guys found this as entertaining as I did. If not, write in and tell me that my fun facts are not fun or interesting, and I'll come up with other ones. Thelma uh, and Louise is our next film. Three fun facts. So the screenwriter, uh, Callie Curry, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, this was her first screenplay. And, uh, you know, again, we'll get into the details later. But for someone's first attempt at a screenplay, this seems like an incredible job, an incredible um, ability and natural talent that just kind of apparently just kind of poured out of her one day when she was driving home. Obviously, she didn't write it all in one day, but that's where it Don't came write from. and drive, people. Yes, please. do not do that. We'd be irresponsible if we didn't tell you that. Uh, or text. Um, let's see. Two. Let's see. Ridley Scott, he actually originally was producer on this movie. He and his brother had just formed one of their original production companies. And they were looking for, basically, they wanted to keep the pipeline full. And so they were kind of looking at anything and everything that came their way. And um, some some producers that also worked with him kicked this to him. And he, he thought it, was, it sounded great. And he's like, all right, let's, we'll sign up. We'll produce it. And they went through like three or four directors in an interview and form. And just nobody quite was wanting to do what he wanted to do with it, which essentially was leave it alone and do it how the screenplay was written. People wanted to change the, you know, the ending, change the characters, change all kinds of things. And finally he was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it myself. Um, which turned out to be a really, uh, really great thing. Uh, so that's, I thought was interesting too. Excuse me. Three. How different would this movie have been if instead of Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, you had Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer, which almost happened or Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Look at that connection. What do you guys think about that? That almost happened as well. But it didn't, and so we got this amazing pairing that we have. Um, also, Billy Baldwin was almost cast in the Brad Pitt role of J.D. Think of how cinematic history would have changed if Billy Baldwin had been J.D. in this movie instead of Brad Pitt. This was Brad Pitt's big break, if you didn't know that. Um, so he could still be... Some obscure former Missouri uh, Missouri Tiger guy working in Hollywood as a busboy, but nope, he beat out Billy Baldwin mostly because of Gina Davis. Actually, she uh, she clicked with Brad Pitt, which I think you can kind of see on screen, um, obviously. And uh, she said, "Nope, I want him," and that's what they did. So uh, finally, you get a bonus one. There's a scene where Christopher McDonald, the uh, shitty Daryl character, um, Gina Davis. Yes, Shooter McGavin. Uh, he finishes eating his pieces of shit for breakfast, and he walks outside of his house, and he goes to get in his car, and he trips over a pile of shit. Not real shit this time. Uh, like, you know, um, it looks exciting or something like that. I don't know. Some people are working on his house, and they've piled a bunch of stuff by his car. He trips over it, falls on his butt, and he gets mad, and he gets in his car and drives away. Uh, it's a pretty fun little humorous uh, aside in the in the movie. kind of sets the tone for his character. Um 
I guess that was all real. And he just stayed in character while he fell over. And so they kept the cameras rolling. They were like, this is good. Let's keep it. So anyway, um, it made $45 million on a $16.5 million budget. So it was pretty successful. And it obviously was a huge hit critically. Um, people love it. It's in the Library of Congress, for God's sakes, the National Film Registry. It won an Oscar for screenplay and had five other nominations, including both main actresses were nominated. So quite the movie. That's what you got. Did you guys Ridley, find it? And Ridley Scott himself. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Best director. One of his director noms. That is only. Um, no. I should know that off the top of my head. Yeah, I think he was nominated for Gladiator and Black Hawk Down as well, at least. Yeah. We can look that up. Maybe Brandon can find that out. Yeah, for good us. call. How many Best Director nominations has Ridley Scott had? I have another interesting fact. Hit me. To hit. So, of the four main characters that we have in these movies, right? You've got your, you know, Goldie Hawn, William Atherton, Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis. Three of the four have red hair. If you remember your Punit squares from. Brandon has confirmed three best doc, best director noms for Ridley Scott. But nice. if you remember your Punit squares from high school biology, you know that redheads, red hair is a recessive trait. What are and the odds? odds of having three out of four people in any given scenario having red hair is very much a very, very low probability. So here we are, right? We're breaking, we're making history. It's like the this. stars aligned. It's, it truly has. Um, yeah, man, not only did Brandon confirm that he was right, but I was right in all three movies. Gladiator. Can I add one more fact? Please do. Or just add in fact. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is to this day, it is the most recent film to have two actors nominated in the same category for either Best Actor or Best Actress. Both of the actresses were nominated for Best Actress. Interestingly, Jodie Foster was originally supposed to appear in this movie, and they both lost to Jodie Foster for Silence of the Lambs. Ooh, that is Dang. a good fact. Man, and then what if Gina Davis or Susan Sarandon would have been in that movie? Susan Sarandon eventually won an Oscar, but... Uh... Yeah, Davis she won one later. There's so many Oscar winners in this, in these two movies. Um, Harvey Keitel, Gina Davis, or not Gina Davis, uh, Susan Sarandon. Gina Davis, Goldie she's Hong. also an Oscar winner. She had just won an Oscar coming off of it. Um, the Accidental Tourist was the film she had done before this that she won an Oscar for. Really? I didn't think she ever won. Yeah. Interesting. And so she... she uh, so yeah, the only non-Oscar winner is good old William Atherton there who is, uh, I know him as, um, well, I shouldn't say I know him now because I can't remember the name of the character, but the lead scientist from Biodome. But as Steve and I talked about today, he's also the pushy reporter from Die Hard, and he's pencil neck EPA guy from Ghostbusters. I think of those three things, like you're the only person that came up with Biodome first. Like everybody else is going to be like, oh, he's the guy from Die Hard. Love me some Biodome. Well, Biodome is the biggest. Of those three roles, Biodome is definitely the biggest role that he had. He's got the most screen time from that one. Um, So, yeah. Anyway, now let's – we've got Nate to talk about our our new approach here with the categories. Nate, lay it on us. What are the categories we're talking about this week? So every week we will have some variation of these three categories, the following three categories. The first one will be exploration of theme. Second category will be visual storytelling. The third category will be characterization or acting. Uh, 
um, directing actors when we think that is relevant. We also have tacked on here, not this week, but we might occasionally throw in a random category if there's some sort of specific cinematic thing that they're both trying to do. So for this week, our three categories for exploration of theme, we are going to talk about uh, the family you make and perhaps the desperation of modern life. Visual storytelling, we are going to talk about chase scenes, particularly car chase scenes, of which are featured heavily in both of these movies. And for characterization acting, we're going to talk finally about something that I think we have teased for several weeks now. Uh, the Both of these directors' treatment of female characters. Something that uh, I think particularly for Steven Spielberg at various points in his career has maybe been a little bit criticized for. Um, maybe Ridley Scott as well. Obviously, they are both male directors and they've been directing movies for several decades now. But I think this is a really, really good week to talk about um, not just their treatment of female characters for these two movies, but just kind of overall for their whole career and maybe how that has evolved a little bit. But looking at uh, category number one, our exploration of theme, the family you make, and the desperation of modern life. In Sugarland Express, we have... Uh, a family, technically a, a married couple, but they have lost custody of their child, and they are literally trying to piece their family back together by driving uh, you know, across Texas and uh, getting their, their child back, who is currently in a foster home. Then in Thelma and Louise, you have this friendship that kind of evolves into this familial relationship where Tina Davis's character is technically married, but her husband is a real jerk and kind of treats her like crap. Susan Sarandon has this boyfriend that kind of wants to be close to her, and she kind of has this on-again, off-again thing with, and he's played by Michael Madsen. Um, so I'm curious as to, looking at this, for just that exploration of theme, which director do you think maybe does it better for these two movies, and which director do you think does it better across their whole career? So <clears throat> I suppose I'll start. So I think that from my standpoint here, from watching these two movies, um, I think Thelma and Louise in terms of like family you make, being on the run, that type of a thing, like I, I think that captures those themes much, much better than Sugarland Express. And I say that because for me, the big issue I had with Sugarland Express, tell me if you guys felt this way, all right? I literally wrote down after like, I don't know, maybe half hour or so of the movie, um, I literally wrote down, is this a comedy? Like, it felt, it had a lot of really weird comedic beats to it. It did not feel like it was taking itself seriously. They had the whole bit with the old couple that they they... Um, after they escape from prison, which was super easy, by the way, um, after they escape from prison, they get in this car with these old people. They're like, hey, you're going the same way as we are. Can we hitch a ride? And they say, sure. And they're in the car. And the old, you know, the, the old guy is driving like eight miles an hour. He's looking in the back seat, trying to convert, trying to converse with them. And and the every cars are weaving all over. There's this line of cars behind him. And then they they flash to the the his wife the old lady and she's gripping the dashboard like oh my god you're going too fast and it, it all plays for comedy and then they get pulled over by the cops the old couple gets out they steal the car away from the old couple and then 
the cop says, stay right here to the old couple. And then he leaves and it's like, okay, maybe that was just a small bit or whatever. Then they come back to him later and they're on the side of the road and they're bickering like an old married couple about staying here. And then another cop comes up and is like, Oh, are you guys the store they stole the car from? And they're like, yeah, that's us. And he goes, stay right here. And he leaves again. And you know, I just thought that whole thing and so much of the, the movie, it didn't end. It got a little bit, more intense as it went on, but but there were still a lot more parts in the movie, far more parts than I anticipated, of just seeming humor. And it was um, the score I felt underscored that as well. The, the score was a little bit more bouncy, a little bit more bubbly than I think you would expect from people breaking out of prison, going possibly to their doom as they try and go and take back their son. And um, it was that whole thing, I, I just really kept taking me out of it. And I was like, why are they playing this? Like, like she, they stop at a fried chicken place and she, I, I drew, I drew a chicken in my notes. She, uh, she's, looking she, she's like somewhat clumsily, but also somewhat seductively leaning out of the car and leaning into the drive through window. And we're the poplins and we want some chicken. And it's just, their accents were all so ridiculous and it i mean they're in the middle of arkansas so like they i mean that's true there are some some pretty crazy accents in in there but still um it that was just the least part of it but the rest of it you know I, i felt played very comedically and i was actually surprised to see that this was the first time that steven spielberg and john williams collaborated one of the greatest director composer collaborations in film history like just throughout their careers and it just did not feel like they were on the same page on this one did you guys feel that way at all or you am i am i totally off base here with it? um i totally agree getting off to a great start with our our new head to head we want to make sure we we're not agreeing about everything <laughs> uh no i agree with you 100 percent that tonally it's all over the place um is it a comedy is it a drama is it an action movie because there's some like the shootout at the car lot even is like there's shades of saving private Ryan in that when the, the young boy is like running away as the bullets are flying around him. I was like, Oh my God, this is like, this looks like something from saving private Ryan. Um, and, but, but then that's also juxtaposed with like this weird sort comedy. of bumbling idiots of yeah, just it's, like, it's also they can't control the recoil of their weapons and all that. Yes. It's the two fools in the Ferris wheel in 1941 on Omaha beach is what's happening in that scene. It's Precisely. incredibly tonally strange. Um, it's um, interesting that, that he chose to do that. He's kind of just kind of freewheeling doing everything. Uh, just kind of let it all hang out really. Um, and I kind of like it, but I agree that it's odd. Um, as far as looping it back to the theme, you know, it's really not to me this movie while it is a road movie it's almost not this might be my hot take for the the whole thing it's not really on the run they're not on the run they just so happen to take the cop hostage now just I can so see happened. Jeff already huh well that seemed like they literally have an entire line of of police cars but they're not them. trying to escape the cops they're yeah, they not they're on the Mexico they're trying to get their baby first. Well, yeah, the but then they, they even ask the them. They say, what are you going to do after you go? What are you going to do after the baby? This is where we're going to Mexico. They only come up with going. that, though, it, like kind of a, in the middle of this. The, the plan, 
Well, that's part of the thing. The two main characters are just kind of bumbling idiots. They don't really know what they're doing or why they're doing it. Everyone in this movie is a bumbling idiot. Well, that's true. That's fair. Um, <laughs> except for except for the sheriff. He's or captain. He he seems actually. There's an interesting interesting parallel here between the captain and in Sugarland Express and Harvey Keitel. Yes, um, his character, that. and especially because both of them at the end points in the movie when they know somebody's going to die do their damnedest to make sure somebody does not die. It was the only, I thought that was yeah, yeah. really something I, I did not even think about, but I thought that was a really interesting um, connection there. In the midst of all these bumbling, um, awful, you know, law enforcement personnel. Yeah. They're like paragons of virtue. Uh, it's very, um, it's very one dimensional. Both of them kind of are like they, they're, they're very much the good cop. Um, there's, there's no bad, to them, there's no, um, well, yeah, they're one-dimensional. Um, we can talk about them a little bit more, I think, in the, the chase scene part. But just going back to the family you choose thing, uh, Thelma and Louise clearly wins, in my mind, um, on that front. You uh, think and on that, the run as well. Yeah, do you think that, I, and this might be a recurring element of how we talk about these movies this week, is there something to the fact that this is Spielberg's very first movie? Like he's at a natural disadvantage here, whereas Ridley Scott is all I was thinking of that. Like Sugarland Express has all the, and you've both said this, like it's all these ideas that Spielberg, I, I was reminded of, even though this isn't the filmmaker we're talking about, the very first uh, line of Roger Ebert's review of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs was now that we know the very talented Quentin Tarantino, now that he has made this movie, it's time for him to go make a better one. And I was reminded of that line yeah, like so that. many times while Sugar. It's like it has these weird, this weird patchwork of all these things he did so much better at various points in his career. Whereas Ridley Scott, when he's doing Thelma and Louise, is already well into his career and is very seasoned and knows exactly what to do with these themes. Uh, particularly like the family you make. And I just feels like Spielberg is maybe not quite there. I feel like he's at a natural disadvantage just because of where this is in his filmography. Yes. I, I think you're totally right. It's not, almost not fair to put these two movies together. They thematically do match up, but both directors are just in such different places that I think, yeah, Thelma and Louise has the upper hand. I think in, in the dual analogy, Ridley's got the high ground. Steven is it down there? Hey. No one can see me on camera, but I was doing I was acting it out for you. Um, yeah, it, it's it, he's in a bad place in terms of uh, a disadvantage when it comes to these two going head to head, just because it is his first movie. I agree with you. Maybe and, only one. I'm sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, and, and this may be something that we can del- we can get into a little bit more in the um, sort of characterization depiction of of female characters because. Um, you know, regardless of which movie it is, Ridley Scott has 18 additional years of forward societal progress, you know? So like when it comes to how you treat characters and especially how you treat women on screen, 1973 to 1991 is a big jump. Like there's a lot of, of change in there and just how society has viewed women. And so that, you know, regardless of, of when it is in his filmography, that is, is going to be an advantage that he has. Well, and even with that, not only does he have that advantage, but, and this shows the level of progress, even with that, Thelma and Louise, 
of the reason it was such a big deal at the time is because it was this female-led... I mean, like, people will literally talk about that movie. In film school, I watched Thelma and Louise as part of a class about feminist theory in film. Like, it was such a crazy thing at the time. Like, wow, this is a completely female-dominated, almost sort of action movie uh, with these two really strong women, and but at the same time, they have these sort of flaws, and it's just, you know... and. Spielberg clearly is not ready to tackle anything like that, both in the year that he's making the movie and just at where he is in his career. Yeah, but we're we're jumping categories here. But we're jumping category. Well, but let's move. Get, Actually, well, one thing that I will say, Spielberg does have a little bit, and not so much an advantage, but I feel like the chase scenes when we talk about visual storytelling, they are a little bit more even. Um, I think that Thelma and Louise has the far more iconic level of them holding hands at the end. Um, and there's no shot uh, in anywhere in Sugarland Express that's going to equal that particular image. But I do feel like the chase scenes are composed pretty decently in Sugarland Express. Um, that was actually one of the uh, Zanuck being on set and commenting on that. There was actually an additional thing that I read that he had asked the cinematographer uh, to start with really easy stuff that Spielberg could kind of get yeah. used to it and when yeah, he got that's... there Spielberg was like composing something that had to do with like this really complex chase element and he was like oh he's doing great it's fine like everything's gonna be fine so right? <laughs> yeah but I do feel like he does a little bit better I'm not sure what you guys think I mean it's certainly not as much of a disadvantage as it is with the theme so are we uh are we in category two now because yeah we're in category talk about the chase scenes like what do you yeah. think in terms of comparing those um I agree with what you said I uh visually the uh Steven Spielberg <clears throat> he's always been you know elite at shots you know framing shots choosing which shots to use getting experimental um and and being um unique you know not repeating similar techniques too often and he's just very very creative and i feel like even here even though it's his first feature length movie it's not on tv um he's already just so comfortable with it um, one shot that completely, to me, is uh, maybe the best shot in, I guess it's a sequence technically, uh, it's multiple shots. Well, it actually is a one-shotter, but when the the captain, the police captain, first comes up on the back of our uh, our two leads and the, the captive police officer, and there's this kind of silly <laughs> sequence where they're talking to each other over the radio, even though they're, you know, what... 10 feet away in two different cars traveling next to each other. Um, but there's, there's this sequence where he go, he takes, I think it's one shot looking from the front and he goes all the way around the, uh, complete 360, and you get a view of, you know, all the characters in both cars. Um, and it just kind of gives you a sense of, you know, not only does it establish, what's happening, but kind of the, the situation of where people are in connection to each other, both as kind of literally spatially, but like kind of where they are kind of in this, this power struggle. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was one of the best shots in, that, in the whole thing. That feels like a, like a standard steel Spielberg thing to me. Like we talked about it in duel. There's a shot that's just like that, that pulls up from the, 
the back of the car in duel and then pans around as he's passing the truck. So you kind of see them both in there. He, he, we talked about a minority report. There's a similar shot and they've, because the technology has improved, he can actually like phase into the car, you know, yeah. like that's something nobody does that shot better than Steven Spielberg. And um, I think it's, I think especially that very first chase scene after they first steal the car and they're um, right before they crash the old people's car um, in Sugarland Express. Like that was really, that was fantastic. It was a good, a very well done, well edited scene. And um, Lou Jean slash Goldie Hawn should be a rally driver. I know that wasn't her driving, but <laughs> um, there was some, find there out was who, some the, who the stunt driver was, by the way. There were some dang, there were some damn good, um, <clears throat> drifts going on in there to to throw these cops off the trail is this but, the one you're thinking um is this the one where it kind of culminates there in the evening and the um one of the cop cars pulls out and then crashes another one behind them and is that mm-hmm. one thing no this is it's one? at the very beginning it's before right before they they crash the car into the creek oh oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. before they even take them hostage that's right yeah yeah sense. okay yeah um <clears throat> so there's so many good chase scenes in this movie. Yeah. Now, I will say that I think Spielberg does better with the chase scenes. However, if we if we talk about visuals on its own, I think something really interesting that Ridley Scott did that I just like I've seen Thelma and Louise before, but um side note, one of the interesting things about this podcast is when we rewatch these movies, even movies that I've seen, I because of how we're looking at them for this podcast, I'd notice things that I didn't notice before, which is really cool. But um, and one of the things that I noticed here is the way he sets up the shots specifically between Thelma and Louise themselves. So as they, we, we talked about, you know, the first category, the family you make, right. And, and, and those two clearly became, you know, like sisters at the end. And the, they were really, they were obviously friends before at the very beginning when they started, but when things started to go bad, they were kind of on different, even before things started to go bad, when they, you know, they were, oh, I don't want to pull over yet. Let's pull over, that type of thing. But when they weren't on the same page as characters, the scenes were always set up so that they were, like, opposing each other. They were watching each other, and they were rarely in the same frame. And he would flip back and forth, like, at the diner scene and scenes in the car, and they were almost, like, confrontational. And then later the more that we get through to the um, to the point where they're getting closer and closer to being on the same page and they're both having fun, they're both enjoying the trip. Then we start to see the shots from the front of the, of the, um, of the car, right? And they're both in frame and they're both looking the same direction. And I, I don't know how intentional that was and maybe just how much like there's only so many ways to shoot people in a car talking to each other and, and stuff, but it felt very intentional to me. And I thought, that that framing of it was was really well done to where I thought that it it added an element that was missing from Sugarland Express. Well, now that you mention it, that it's not just in the car. Uh, later on in the movie, there's the scene where they're um, they're talking on the phone to the to Harvey Keitel's character, and the shot has them both in it. Uh, and you know, she um, Thelma's kind of behind Louise, kind of supporting her, and they both look in the same direction. Um, there's a couple kind of like that. The, the, the scene where they, they mess with the trucker and blow up his truck, the, there's the iconic shot from behind of them both sitting on the, 
on the convertible mm-hmm. staring at him coming up and they're both kind of in the same pose and, and Thelma, one of them has the kind of the gun stuck in her back pocket. They're in the same, same shot together, looking the same way. I, I think well, you're onto and, something there. And, and they started to do that right before they pick up JD. And so they, you know, they're kind of on the same page. They're like, okay, let's do this. And, and, you know, Thelma guilts Louise into doing it, but then they go in the, the diner the next morning and then it's like, oh my God, you left him in the room with the money. Why did you do that? And that whole scene, they're they're looking at each other and they're not shown in the same shot. So it even like switched. And that was that was kind of where I was like, this has to be intentional. There's Nico another thing. Oh. Hi, Steve. Um, okay, I'll just hit this real quick. Uh, there's another interesting thing. I can't take credit for noticing this, but... Jeff, you shared a couple articles uh, on the Criterion website. There's a Criterion edition of this, and one of the um, one of the writers had a very interesting um, point here. Uh, it's Jessica Kang in the article "How the West Was Won." Anyway, I can't again. I can't take credit for this, but they say for the entire last hour of the movie. This is almost a quote. I'm paraphrasing her article, but Thelma and Louise are shown indoors only three times. Um, once in CCTV footage, twice when they make phone calls. Each instance is instrumental in getting them caught. Interiors and homely protections that pro- that they promise are a trap. It's only outdoors uh, that they're that they're actually truly themselves. And you know that's um, another great way that, if intentional, that you know they used visual storytelling to uh, to really kind of show this transition and show what what really matters for these two women um, and this, you know, the true situation that they're in. I think that what we're almost describing is how Spielberg is using the visual storytelling in this movie to basically get coverage so that, you know, where all the characters are physically. Uh, The other shot that I really liked in Sugarland Express is when captain is behind him, And in the top half of the frame, you see his eyes and his rear view mirror the bottom half of the frame is looking forward into the car in front. It's a that great shot. Really cool. That was really cool. It, it, it's a really great shot because it's it's coverage. It's showing where all four of these main characters are at well, the same and time. And it's, it's split screen without using the gimmick of a split screen, yes, right? It, that's it's that's exactly what it is. So it's inventive, but what you're describing with Ridley Scott is that his visual storytelling is also telling a thematic story. There's a purpose to it beyond just coverage in terms of we need to establish where people literally are physically in a car. Um, and I think that shows, again, a little bit more, and again, they're Spielberg's at a disadvantage this week, but a little bit more of uh, a director's maturity in terms of what he's trying to do visually, that he's literally telling a thematic story with how he is framing these particular characters. Spielberg is great, and again, he's very inventive, He's not telling any kind of thematic story with the coverage of these characters. He's literally trying to tell you where they are in the car at any given time. And I think that is the real clear difference when you're looking at their visual storytelling in these two movies. That's a really good point because when you, you know, when I think about the greatest, like the best visual shots from that, from Sugarland Express, you know, my beyond the car chases what sticks out to me is the scene where they're setting up the snipers in the um, foster home when they're getting ready for Lugene and Clovis to come and possibly shoot them down. 
you know, and they're moving, they're very carefully moving all the objects in the house and, and sort of just like, they're taking away this idea of home. Right. And there's, it's, there's, there's a little bit of, of theme there, but it's, it's just not on the same level quite yet because then a lot of it is just, you know, juxtaposing the shots through the scope of them coming down the road and that kind of a thing. And it's just, it looks really cool and it's really well done. And they kind of get there with just like sort of taking over this home um, because, you know, it's sort of taking that idea of taking home away from, from this, this supposed family, but it's, it, it just doesn't quite get there at the same level, if you ask me. And I think that, I think I started by talking about this particular shot. What's the most iconic shot from either of these movies? It's the reason that we remember Thelma and Louise holding hands mm-hmm. in the car is because that's the conclusion of a story. That's the, that's a visual conclusion yeah. of what their story is. That's why it's so iconic. Because even though it's a relatively innocent physical gesture, it has this great meaning. They're going over, you know, they're going over this edge with each other, and it's it's very. Um, know it's very profound and it's very emotional for them as they it's a it's a very real embrace to them when they hold hands like that that's why we remember that shot because of the visual storytelling that has led up to them embracing in that way and i think another thing that i I remember too from the movie that uh, from sugarland express that um visually was you know had some thematic elements to it was the um, the scene where they're staying overnight in the RV, excuse me, in the used car lot, and they see like some random person watching TV in the. There's like a drive-in theater. Is it TV? I couldn't. I couldn't. Wasn't sure what that. Didn't was. figure that out either. But um, yeah, they're watching cartoons. They're able to. Yeah, they're watching cartoons. Watching Wiley e. Coyote wrote in their cartoons, and at one point they they they're focusing on Clovis, and you see the. Roadrunner cartoon happening in a reflection on the glass superimposed over his face. And the Wiley e. Coyote is, you know, doing his thing where he just fails completely and he's always destined to fail. And you see Clovis, who was having up to that point, they were having a good time laughing with each other and watching the cartoon. And he gets this solemn look over his face, and you see it turn from laughing to just completely solemn and sadness. And it's this idea that, you know, he's Wiley e. Coyote. That's his life. And he's going to, he's destined to fail and he knows he'll fail because that's all he has. That's all he's meant for. And it's like, that was good. But at the same time, like maybe a little too on the nose. And that that's one of those things where I can definitely, that comes back to Spielberg being at the disadvantage, being so young in his career when he does this, you know, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe modern day Spielberg or even Spielberg of 10, 15 years later would have handled that shot differently or that scene differently. But um, yeah, that's it. That. Well, and I think even, I think that scene also, that's a good demonstration of kind of the distinction that y'all are talking about too, between using the shots to tell a story versus having cool shots and the story going on kind of simultaneously. So that particular shot that you're talking about where you're seeing the cartoon reflected off the screen in front of Clovis's face, you, you could get the same effect of Clovis seeing himself in this character 
without actually having the reflection shot. You know what I mean? If you just had the camera behind his shoulder, seeing what he's seeing, and then a shot just of him without the reflection. But Spielberg puts in the reflection shot. I don't know why he did it, but basically because it's a cool-looking shot, right? I don't think that that extra added layer there has another storytelling uh, aspect to it, whereas it seems like everything, not everything, but most things that Scott Ridley Scott's doing in his movie, like every single thing is a weighted purpose and a presence. Do you agree? I think I do. And I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm to say overall, I think that, especially with certain elements of Sugarland Express, there are things that are more impressive visually and maybe more technically um, good or better. And especially like that, the scene where the night chase, right, where they're waiting at the gas station mm-hmm. and the, the captain is in his car and they show the, they have a shot really low from the ground and they're showing the car and there's a street light on the opposite street and that's, so it's casting the car in shadow and then there's this big light around it and you see the exhaust fuming from out of the car. I mean, that was a fantastic, just really great shot. Um so stuff like that, like, is really, it's really good looking. It's very technically impressive. But in terms of, like, thematic elements of telling a story visually, um, I don't think Spielberg is quite there yet in his career. And I think Ridley Scott is at this point with this movie. And, you know, I would even venture to say, though, that even with Spielberg and his career and how far, um, how far he would come from Sugarland Express... I still don't think even today, I don't think he could make a movie like Thelma and Louise. I just don't know that that's something that's in his wheelhouse. I mean, you guys feel that way? I think some of his internalized mother issues uh, would preclude it, which, hey, that might be a segue towards. Well, and that's exactly what I was going to say is that if we talk about their treatment of women, I'm not so sure that Spielberg. of course, we're three guys. I mean, we could preface yeah, that we're who just like better three to men. discuss? Yeah, who better to discuss the uh, the the treatment of women? I, I'm not so sure that Spielberg that there is poor treatment of women in films. I think that he just tends to go out of his way to not really focus on female characters. It's interesting that if you look at his filmography after he makes this one, in which the main character is a woman. It's another 10 years, more than 10 years, until he gets to The Color Purple and focuses on female protagonists. At, after that, it's Jaws, you know, very masculine. You have Close Encounters of the Third Kind there, mostly male characters. 1941, as we discussed in that episode, that's probably the real peak of the... Uh, it, it problematic. Misogynistic overtones. I mean, just some very, very problematic uh, depictions of women in, in that movie. Um, and so, yeah, he, he goes like another decade before he even takes a crack at trying to do a female-focused story. And again, then after that, there's, I mean, there's, there's just not a lot in his filmography. Whereas Ridley Scott, he has, uh, you know, he's Alien. He has this movie, which is like, again, I watched and discussed this movie in a feminist theory class. He has G.I. Jane. He has these movies with very, very strong female characters, and he's interested, at least, in depicting women and female protagonists throughout his career. It's just, it's different. Um, and again, I'm not so sure that Spielberg, other than 1941, I'm not so sure that Spielberg is 
depicting women incorrectly or inappropriately. I just think he kind of sometimes goes out of his way to not really depict women in stories. One of the biographies I was reading, um, it said that he was talking about this kind of undercurrent and it said something to the effect of, it's not so much misogyny, but almost a, a fear, um, and a, a, um, unwillingness to, to engage with. Uh, and I think that kind of makes, makes some sense. Sorry, Jeff, I stepped on your toes there. No, you're good. Cause I was essentially going on this, wanted to go along the same lines where it's one thing to just not have, or to, to have female characters. And I guess I, I can't speak exactly to color purple cause I actually have not seen that movie, but uh, it's one thing to have like a woman as your central character focus. And then it's another thing to have a woman and her, her own femininity, you know, her own womanhood as the, as a central component of their character. Right. Like, cause even Ripley from alien, she happens to be a woman. And we talked about in that episode, you know, it was written genderless and then they just, they cast a woman to be in that character. And so, so there's nothing specifically about Ripley that is like about being a woman, right? But Thelma and Louise and GI Jane to it, to a different degree, you know, is specifically calls out about these, the, about how they are women and how they deal with that in society, in places, in roles, in scenarios where women usually aren't, you know, and we, women usually aren't in these um, sort of, you know, they're, they're not the, the gangsters on the run type of, of people like, like the Anthelma and Louise, you know, wanted in multiple States and all this kind of a thing. And they're not, um, you know, they're not Navy SEALs like in GI Jane and, and how that is a factor and a very important part of those stories, you know, so even, even beyond just having a woman as your lead actor or, or character in a movie, having it focus so much on their womanhood is something that, that Ridley Scott is, it has at least some interest in and has tackled in his career that, that Spielberg has, has stayed away from even with, again, I guess, uh, I don't know, Nate, have you seen the color purple? Does that, is it, I don't want to step on the, Step on my point purple, here it's it, been a long time since I've seen it. It is very, di- and it's funny now that we're talking about it, it, because of this, it is really different than anything else in his filmography because it is a very female-centered story. Yeah, it's almost, um, what, the, the exception that proves the rule, right? That, yeah, that yeah, and it's, it's also obviously very grounded in the African-American experience in this country, which is not something that Steven Spielberg goes about tackling a lot. It, it is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting outlook. Um, I just look at, and again, I'm not trying to like nitpick Spielberg. I'm not, I'm not saying that his treatment of women is altogether bad. It's not. It's just like as I'm looking through his filmography here, like women are often depicted as, I mean, I could literally go through of like the the nagging wives of of his filmography i mean well, jaws you get it a little bit close encounters of the third kind you get it a little bit a lot uh, i mean <laughs> terry gar's character she like leaves him and that's the whole thing yeah. and then even but then even that right besides the nagging wife right then then all of a sudden close encounters of the third kind is one of the absolute weirdest bits where he he meets this other woman who had the same close encounter that he did right and then like he's still married like two days ago, he was living with his family and then they have this great connection. And at one point they like make out 
underneath the alien spaceship. And then they just like go their separate ways and nothing is ever said again. It's so bizarre. And it's like, this woman is just this, this throwaway thing for him to have this sort of sexual awakening at this one single point, And then that's it. It was, it, it's so bizarre. It's you, I'm literally going through it. You see it in hook. <laughs> you see it in AI artificial intelligence where the mom is almost the villain and like gives the, like literally throws the little artificial intelligence boy away it's just you kind of keep going it's in war of the worlds even though tom cruise's character is like kind of a piece of shit dad like the the wife is almost depicted as kind of this nagging oh well i'm gonna drop the kids off it's just you kind of see it's even in bridge of spies it was a little bit in that movie like less than 10 years old you almost see it a little bit in the fablemans which is Uh, almost his parents like you see it million percent in the fablemans that's what the movie's about almost like and it's exactly like the the whole thing is about the failing of his his mother to come to grips with the death of her mother and you know and then she has this affair that he discovers while making a movie which i think is fictionalized a little bit i'm not sure steven spielberg actually discovered his mother having an affair by shooting a movie but you just see i don't know you see that a lot i'm not trying you see it in catch me if you can there's like the nagging wife kind of she's she's at fault for the divorce and that's why the frank abagnale character the leo character it's it's as I'm really starting to think through it, I, I'm not trying to. I'm not. I'm not trying to nitpick Spielberg. But that's not even a nitpick. Right? Like that's a that's a that's a legitimate criticism. We're not talking about I, a nitpick. I'm bringing. Here. I'm bringing up multiple movies. I'm bringing up multiple <clears throat> movies where women are depicted as kind of this. Oh, you boys. Like you know, yeah. I'm. You know, I'm. Et. You didn't even bring up Et of... either, and the mom is just like just. Yeah. That's the frazzled mom. It's the same in uh in Duel even. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, there, yeah. There's something kind of about harpy wife the way she's acting. Yeah, and what I love about Thelma and Louise that's so different about that, that's really so enlightening is that a these characters are like they're very different characters, and I love that they are female characters. That particularly the Gina Davis character is Gina Davis Thelma. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the Thelma character. She herself is very flawed. She's a very, very flawed person. She's clearly way too trusting. She, you know, she kind of gets pushed. She lets, she allows herself to get pushed around by this really asshole husband. She has all these things, but like, that's a very, I don't know. There's something about it that feels very true and unforced that like women are people too. And women can be flawed and women, we don't need to have this perfect representation. She's she's almost childlike. Yes, she's almost childlike, but mm-hmm. it's juxtaposed with the Louise character, who's this very strong-willed, and she's kind of the one who's always coming up with the plan of what they're going to do next. It just seems very honest and open and refreshing. And when I look at Spielberg's filmography, I don't see a lot of depictions of women. Honestly, the only one that I can really think of that jumps right off of uh, the uh, film, the Wikipedia filmography to me is the Ellie Sattler character in Jurassic Park. She's kind of the one that is maybe a little bit of an exception of like she's very independent and she kind of has her own agenda and she's clearly very smart and she's not depicted like all these other women are depicted in his movies. It's like, oh, I'm just so frazzled. Like, I mean, it almost feels like she should have been if it hadn't been for like a book. 
like if Spielberg, if that would have been depicted in a typical Spielberg way, she would have been like, she already would have been Alan Grant's wife, and she would have been like mad that they were going on this yeah. this excursion <laughs> to Jurassic Park, you know? Why would you? And then, why and would then, you do this for us? Why would, why you, would you do? And and then and then she would probably have to be like saved in the end, and whereas like she's kind of the one Ellie Sattler kind of does a lot of the saving, yeah. Uh, so, so, but even she, it's almost. Again, the exception that proves the rule. Have you guys, Jeff? I know you have because we've talked about it. Have you heard of the Bechdel test? Mm-hmm. Nate, have you heard of this? Yes, this is the test okay. where, for our listeners, if you don't know what that is, it's where a movie passes the test if it has two. And correct me if I'm wrong. You have to have two female characters have a conversation in a movie that is not in any way related to one of the male characters. Then it Correct. passes the Bechtel test. Yes, yeah. and we should give credit so that we're not <laughs> we're not uh, stealing it. it. It's named after an American cartoonist named Alison Bechtel. Uh, so, props to her. But uh, I think does a single Steven Spielberg movie that we've talked about on this show meet that? I don't know that it does. Um, is there a single? <laughs> Maybe the color purple, but the color is, there purple, a single, is there a single Steven Spielberg movie where two women talk to each other about a man or not? I, I, color color purple, which I have not seen in a very long time, I feel very confident in saying it passes it. That is the only one that I so, can say with confidence. Even has a, I'm trying to think now of scenes <laughs> in Spielberg movies where two women talk. It's kind of stunning, guys. Right? <laughs> yeah, like that's. I mean, mean, I can kind of see why people have had this issue for a while. And you know, Ridley Scott is. You know, this is probably just a symptom of Hollywood, um, and how male centric it is in our society just in general. But he's no paragon of femininity. Yeah, he's not either. When you're looking at his list, but he does have way more powerful women. Obviously, this movie clearly passes the test. It is like the shining example of it, right? But um. He also has strong women, like we've talked about, Alien, G.I. Jane, but even think about The Last Duel, which just came out. The whole movie is about a woman who they don't take her word for it when she says she was sexually assaulted. Uh, and the movie is told in, you know, three, from three different points of view. And that's literally the basis of the whole freaking movie. Can you see Steven Spielberg telling that story? I don't know that I can. So... Uh, I think Ridley Scott definitely wins this round too. If this was an actual duel in this series or in this uh, episode, poor Steven Spielberg is laying there bleeding out with like multiple stab wounds and Ridley is like untouched. This is I am, I'm looking. So there's an, I want to give them credit. IndieWire has an article that says the color purple passes the Bechtel test, but how many other Steven Spielberg movies do? <laughs> okay. And then it goes through. Um, it does give... Jurassic Park, a technical pass because... Which is uh, the best kind of pass. Yeah, that's that's obviously... Is it because Ellie talks, talks to Lex? Is that, is that the, exactly that is? what it is. Oh my yes, god. Exactly <laughs> a literal <it> child. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Um, it gives a narrow pass to... It gives a lot of narrow passes. It gives a narrow pass to E.T. Um, because the mother uh, it talks to her daughter Gertie, played by Drew Barrymore. Again, a child. They have a couple conversations that are not about any uh, male figure. Um, <laughs> it's really the see. This is what I'm saying. Like it gives War of the Worlds a pass because there's like a brief conversation between the, <laughs> Woman the Soldier Dakota... One. Run, yeah. no, it's, Woman it's, Soldier. It's literally, it's literally like a brief moment where the mother character talks to the daughter character, played by Dakota Fanning. 
Oh like and it's like okay you have a good weekend like that's the thing that gets it and 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 stuff like that entirely misses the point of the test right yes, it does, like because... a te- again a technical pass not different than the actual what the point what the test is trying to draw attention to yeah it also gives a narrow pass to the lost world because there are conversations between um, the Jeff Goldblum character, his daughter, sneaks on, and then yeah, the the child. Julianne Moore character has some conversation. Yeah, wow, that's, that's not funny. that's not the point of the test. <laughs> the point really of the test stunning. is not to pass through on a on a minor minor technicality. Um, so really, it's only the color purple that has significant scenes with two female characters talking. About some about the conversation it is not about a male character. Yeah, I feel like we can try to title this episode: Three White uh, Men Discover the Patriarchy." More, more, well, more trying, at eleven. I'm trying to go through and look at um, Ridley Scott to see how much. Obviously, Thumb and Louise, and um, does does Alien? I don't think so. I mean, if so, it's the two female characters talking about the friggin' alien. I mean, yeah, but I don't know if that actually happened or not. I can't remember. Um, um G.I. Jane, seen it's that. been forever since I've seen that. Does she, I haven't seen it. Does she talk with many other women? I mean, kind of the whole point of the movie is she's in a male dominated. She's the only space. one, yeah. And you know, what's interesting is now that we talk to, start to talk about Ridley Scott, other than Thelma and Louise, a lot of his movies with the female characters are more about those female characters being in male dominant parts of society. I mean, yeah. Hannibal as well, right? Yep. Clarice, same deal. Yeah. Is she, uh, although that one may have passed, it's because didn't she have like a, I don't know. He's got Delmon Louise though, so they can't, they can't take that from him. That's true. Um, hey, you know, the counselor, right? We had the uh, <laughs> Cameron Diaz and Penelope Cruz talked about a ring. That's not a man. wearing a hard hat? <laughs> Does it, that it count? Passes. Does that count? <laughs> it passed. I, according to, no according to IndieWire, that would pass for sure. Um, so one thing I texted you guys after we watched these movies, I said, you know, Thelma and Louise, are we sure this movie was directed by Ridley Scott? Cause in my mind, despite the fact that he's more well known as uh, a director who, who deals in sometimes, you know, feminist, um, has strong female characters, et cetera. In my mind, he had a stretch when I was quote, coming up where like almost all his movies just had nothing really to do. They definitely didn't pass the Bechtel test. So, um, you know, your, your Black Hawk Downs, your, he did a matchstick man, but uh, Kingdom of Heaven, uh, American Gangster, Body of Lies, Robin Hood, Exodus, you know, a lot of these are, you know, real manly man movies, Gladiator, of course. And so I'm like, you know, this guy that directed Black Hawk Down, which I think has no female speaking parts, um, you know what? Maybe one of the one of the wives at home picks up a phone and is like, "Are you there?" That might be literally it. Um, but this guy directed Thelma and Louise. That's where I was coming from. But after we kind of look at it, you know, he does kind of have the chops. At least when we're looking at it from the the skewed perspective of Hollywood, right? I mean, in a true, completely balanced um, society, if if everything wasn't completely skewed one way, then yeah, of course he's he's not some paragon of of virtue either. But for Hollywood, it seems like he's doing a pretty decent job. Yeah, and there really. were two main there were two main things that I thought after seeing Thelma and Louise again, and 
Uh, number one, I'd already mentioned, which is that I don't think Steven Spielberg could ever make this movie, even even today. Number two is that I had forgotten. I don't, it'd been a long time since I'd seen Thelma and Louise, and I'd always just kind of watched it because it was this famous movie that you should watch. And so uh, that 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 was my impetus for watching it before, but watching it now with with a bit more of a of a critical eye for this podcast, um, it's really good. It is one of his best movies, I think, and it is. Um, I was kind of surprised myself about how, you know, I always remembered it just because kind of the the famous. It's almost like you. I don't even know that I remembered how much watching it. I just remember everyone else remembering it, right? Like, like just because of all the famous scenes and and in, they did a spoof in in one of the Wayne's World movies, right? About how the ending to their movie should be like the Thelma and Louise ending, and and that kind of a thing. You know, it's just a part of pop culture. And so, how much was actually my memory of seeing it, and how much is just my memory of all of this stuff that's that's steeped in pop culture from this one particular movie, but. Um, watching it again, I was just like, man, this is a really good movie. And I see why it was nominated for so many awards. And um, yeah, I was, uh, that was kind of a nice little, little surprise for me. So uh, if, if you want my final vote, I think, I think I tip the cap to, to Ridley Scott this week. I think we've got to almost be unanimous. I'd be shocked if Steve said Steven Spielberg. I feel like Ridley Scott clearly wins the day here. Yeah. Yeah. This is in my, okay. Using the dual imagery. This is in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when King Arthur fights the Black Knight. Ridley Scott is King Arthur in this one. And Steven Spielberg <laughs> is, is the poor Black Knight. Now, again, Sugarland Express is a technically very well-made film. It was entertaining even. I enjoyed the time I spent with it. But yeah, the three themes or the three categories just sliced and diced Ridley Scott all the way. And like think- you said, Jeff, I'd never seen this movie. And it, it's instantly like maybe one of my favorite movies. It's a yeah. fantastic movie. It's. I, it I, I, I did not realize how much I, I liked it. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, I think that something might help us a little bit in, in the coming weeks. And Jeff, I'll let you preview what's to come. But quick teaser: the next two weeks, we have movies that are paired that they were made at roughly the same time. What really hurt Spielberg here yeah. is that this was like so much earlier, and it was early in his career. We've got, you know, the war movies are Saving Private Ryan and Black Hawk Down, which were made a few years apart, and then Catch Me If You Can and Matchstick Men, which came out, like, a few months apart from each other. So I think we might get away. I think the those might pair a little bit better just because we won't be able to look at one of them and say, like, well, he was so young and it was such a new thing, and he didn't really – he hadn't really figured out how to do a lot of stuff yet. They're both going to be pretty firmly in command of, of their subject material when they're doing those I'm looking forward to especially that second pairing. Yeah. It's going to be very fascinating. And that is our lead into next week. So I think what, what are we at now? I, by, uh, are we at, is it five or is it uh four, four now? I've lost count. Cause this is the eighth week. Yeah. It's four, four now. I was going to say, I think that tied it back up. I think it's, four we did not plan it this way. People Ridley we really Scott did, we for really the did not. Yeah. I, we just, we honestly We've even didn't put changed, that much like, thought into like putting the themes where we did. Yeah, and we just we kind of wanted some of the the popular movies up front. We did Duel and Duelist first, just because it was our first movie. Right. So yeah, but we're now we're at we're at four four, three tied up stumbling there. towards brilliance. Yes, and next week <laughs> four. Sorry, Brandon. Might, Don't leave out the next week might be our 
our dare I say toughest week, at least the toughest since Jaws vs. Alien, but um, Saving Private Ryan versus Black Hawk Down. Both movies that were nominated for Best Picture, both movies where they were nominated for Best Director, um, both very, very brutal and important war movies made three years apart. Two years? Three years apart. So, um, yeah, next week will be war movies. But uh, So anyway, if, uh, if you guys like the new format, all of uh, everyone out there, right? Thank you. <laughs> the fans have spoken. You have been heard, and this is what you get. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you, if you have any other suggestions, please feel free. We can, we've shown that we will take them to heart. So uh, we appreciate everyone who does listen and, and gives us feedback of any kind. So if you have any more, go ahead and give them to us. Steve, hit us with the socials on where they can get it to us. I literally just closed the outline. <laughs> It's, I think it's, well, it's dual the greats on all that. Dual the greats at uh, gmail.com is our email. Please email us. Our mailbag, I think, currently is uh, is empty. Um, there's a lot of spam in there. Anyway, uh, dual the greats at gmail.com. And then on all the general socials, um, except for TikTok, we are at dual of the greats. And on TikTok, we are at dual podcast, I believe. Brandon, is that right? feel like you always you're always johnny on the spot with it right that's that's a thumbs up from brandon so hit us on any of the socials if if you guys have any more suggestions or or what you like don't like so with that we'll wrap up the show this week thank you all so much for listening this week and be sure to come back next week for our war movie week saving private ryan versus blackhawk down uh until then we'll see you next week thanks for stopping by